0: A lot of discussion recently—well, more than recently—but uh, there's been a lot more debate about public funds and private funds, and what the future of healthcare in this country should look like. Dr. Kevin McLeod joins us now, an internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. Dr. McLeod, thank you so much for making time for us today.
1: Jill, thank you. And and I was listening to the news. I, I like that there's a new Superman movie coming, but they're making us wait till 2025. And...
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a hardship. The original was
1: the best in the 1970s.
0: But, yeah, yeah something, uh, something to look forward to, uh, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. Um, you put out uh, on social media uh, talking about the difference between private delivery and private healthcare. What are your thoughts on, on that and the debates that we're seeing and hearing right now about bringing in more private aspects to healthcare? I think
1: as soon as you hear this term private, people think that that means you know we're going to go out and get insurance, or we're going to pay for services privately, and it, it's very different than that. Most people don't realize this, but more than fifty percent of healthcare in Canada is delivered privately now. You know, some estimates say it's actually closer to seventy percent. You think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. But but any physician office is a is a private business. Um, it's publicly funded, and I'm a huge proponent that healthcare needs to be publicly funded, and it it needs to be. Um, universal or universal access. But what we're seeing now is that people don't have universal access. I, I see complications and bad outcomes all the time because people can't access a system because we seem to be running it not in the most efficient way, um, so I'm certainly not a proponent of, of injecting private funds into a system or a for-profit system. That's very problematic and and actually probably, in in my view, worsens outcomes. But private delivery is not the end of the world. I'll give you a good example. So, you know, I I have patients who need intravenous iron, um, and this was something that was typically done in a hospital setting, and. There's a lot of bureaucracy to how that all works and a a pretty, you know, complicated administrative structure. So, you you know, you might have a nurse in, in a medical day unit clinic giving two infusions an hour. Well, you know, I do them in my office. It's fully publicly funded. Patients don't pay a penny. They're not paying to come and get an infusion. But... I've hired nurses, I can set the terms, I pay them really well, so they want to come and work here, and um, they, they do four to six an hour, right, so the per patient cost is a lot less for the system, the waiting list has shrunk way, way down, and, and, you know, you could do a similar thing with, with surgical things and, and um, you know, other medical things where there's a need, you know, you go get an x-ray, it's typically in a private clinic, even though it's publicly funded.
0: Right. And, and how is that any different than even, uh, say, cataract surgeries that have been done in, in a private clinic or, or WorkSafe BC claims that don't go into a public system as much go into the private clinic system?
1: Absolutely. It's not right now where where you have a problem and and where I think the nuance gets a little bit missed when politicians want to grandstand and say no private health care. Where you run into a problem is if you make it a for profit system. So, you know, if a big company comes in that has to make a profit and reports to shareholders, well, then we have a problem. Because if you, you you know, one of our biggest challenges in healthcare right now is a lack of human resource. Um, You know, we can't run ORs at full capacity because we don't have enough nurses. So if you you suddenly create a for-profit entity, you know, the, the the typical response is going to be, well, that's great. This patient's going to come out of the public system. They're going to go pay for their hip replacement and they're going to decrease the burden on the public system. And, and that sounds right, but it's actually not what in fact would happen because to, staff that private system, you've pulled people out of the public system, um, and you actually exacerbate the the problems in the public system because you then have even fewer nurses and, and doctors working in there. You know, if you said to me, Joe, or I said to you, you know, you, you can earn 20% more by going and working in a private system, and it may be more than that, I mean, it may be 50% more you know, what's going to happen? You're going to take Fridays off, you know, you you may work a little bit less. um, But the public system that you've left is is going to have an even bigger crisis. So, because we are in such dire need of human resource, adding in a for-profit private system is going to exacerbate problems. But having a, a private system that offers a service that's publicly funded, you may actually make things more efficient. Imagine if you said to a group of of orthopedic surgeons and nurses and cleaning staff, like everybody who is involved in making that operation happen, you guys are all sharing and making this efficient. And so we're going to pay X amount per hip surgery. You know, we think it costs, say, $1,000. And if you guys can make this more efficient and uphold a really high standard of care, all of you, right down to the cleaning staff, are going to share in that savings. Like, let's incentivize you to make this efficient. Now, technically, that's private. It doesn't cost the taxpayer anymore. You probably have a higher throughput, and you incentivize all of the people working in the system to be efficient. You know, now, technically, that's private, but you know, is, is that so bad? Because at the end of the day... What my patients really want, and what I want, is for them to have access to care, and right now they're not getting that. Um, you know, so we've got to figure it out.
0: And But how is it different, and don't get me wrong, I'm all over uh, efficiencies and finding ways to, to make this work better, because clearly what we're doing isn't working great, and obviously just throwing more money at it isn't going to fix the problem, but if we're talking about a, a scenario like you said, where you're paying nurses and able to do the, the iron infusion, but how is, how is that different in that the nurses that you're paying in, in that setting aren't coming then from a public setting?
1: Well, they are. So I'm very, very careful with that, um, because I don't want to exacerbate a problem with, you know, staffing emergency rooms. So I've been very clear with the nurses that, you know, you're here, like on your days off, like, I I don't want to poach for that. Um, You know, but you're right. I mean, some people may pull people away from that system. You know, I, I guess how I rationalize that is, You know, I am shortening down waiting lists. So if they were working in that public system, fewer of these infusions would get done. The efficiency is not the same. So at the end of the day, the patient population is actually getting better patient care and a a shorter waiting time for ultimately less money on the taxpayer. Mm
0: -hmm. Do, do you see it as a, as a way too? And I and I and when you would talk about politicians grandstanding, I think that's exactly what it is. And I think we're, we're seeing and hearing from the public that people are tired of that as well. And and oftentimes we hear that phrase, we don't want this to become an American style, style system. Well, nobody has ever, as far as I know, called for us to adopt an American style system. Although you could also argue with the addition of Obamacare, more Americans seem to be more pleased with their system. But what we're looking at a system our systems more uh, European systems so or, or those that have universal health care they also have a, a part of the healthcare system that is private uh, is there room do you think for us to be having those discussions and looking at that here
1: absolutely I mean you know I think we we have to have those discussions for sure right I mean You know, take something like MRIs, right? So people will wait sometimes a year for an MRI and they can't get their back surgery done until they have the MRI. And they're running the MRI machine at our hospital flat out. But then just down the road from me, a block away, there's an MRI machine that isn't getting used that was purchased by a group of radiologists. So it's technically private. I can go pay you know, $1,200 and get my MRI today if I want. But but why would government not say, look, we're paying, and again, I'm making up numbers here, $350 to do an MRI at the hospital. What if they contract out to this MRI machine down the street and say, we're not paying you any more. We're going to pay the same amount we pay the hospital. But you've got the facility, like, let's use it and shorten down the wait time. Right, there, there's facilities that are that are there and services that are there, but because we have this idea that well, we can't fund anything that's private. But the same clinic that that MRI machine's sitting in, patients are going through to get their X-rays and ultrasounds, and so it, it, This is where politicians really it drives me bananas because it is this grandstanding. But if you actually are on the ground as a patient, you don't care. You just want to get your service. Um you know, and again, publicly fund it. I am not advocating for private shareholders coming in i mean that 's the disaster in the United States because you know hospitals are trying to order more tests and do more things which harm people because they 're trying to improve a bottom line but but we've we 've got the ability to do things differently here. We just seem so scared to do it because you know everybody 's got like It's like one line, well, you're endorsing private care. So you're the boogeyman and you're bad. Um, You know, we've got to get away from that. And that's why I sort of put out that that tweet, because I, I just want us to have a richer debate as to what we do to fix this. Because again, I see patients getting harmed every damn day, because they can't access care.
0: Could there also be a model and and I think this is done elsewhere with the public and and private model in that if if we're really worried about staff being plucked out of the public hospitals and public clinics, could there be a a minimum that you must work this many hours in the public system and and like you're saying nurses maybe on their day off or or somebody that then you're choosing that you're going to go and you're going to go do MRIs at this clinic or you're going to go here and then you're not actually taking people out of the system.
1: Absolutely, Jill. And you know, that, So another good example, you know, with orthopedics. So a, a buddy of mine is an orthopedic surgeon, and I think it was the month of November, maybe December, but you know, he had two days to operate. That's all he was given by the health authority. So here's a guy who you've spent gazillions of tax dollars to train, and he's sitting around not able to operate. It's not like you're pulling him to do something else he doesn't actually have something to do then because there's no OR time. So, you know, if he goes and it doesn't matter where he operates, if it's publicly funded, you know, but create some additional capacity so that his patients aren't sitting on a wait list for 18 months. I mean, if his patients really knew that, wow, like, He he, he's not able to work today and he wants to work, but he can't because there's not a war time and I'm on a waiting list. Like, those stories need to get out there because it it just shows the inefficiency, um, Mm -hmm. you know, of the system. And and we don't need to pile more money into this. We spend so much tax dollars on health care, but we need to do it more efficiently.
0: Well, I'm glad that you are able to join us when you can and get these stories out there and get this information out to people so we do have a better idea on what's happening. Dr. McLeod, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much.
1: Anytime. Thanks, Jill. Bye.
0: (music) As you've been hearing on the news, the death toll from toxic drugs in this province continues to rise. And this also on the first full day of the decriminalization of small amounts of illicit drugs. Joining us to talk more about this is BC's Chief Coroner, Lisa Lapointe. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. So it's It's such an important topic.
0: It is, and certainly the numbers today continue to paint a very grim picture. When we look at the number of British Columbians' lives lost, where are we now as far as the numbers that you have been able to compile? Your office has compiled taking a look at 2022.
2: So we know that in 2022, we lost 2,272 people in our province to illicit drug toxicity. Uh, and we, we now know that in 2021, there were um, uh, additional testing that came in. We lost 23 over just over 2,300 people last year. So we are still continuing to lose across BC in communities, big and small, six people every day, of every week, of every month to the toxic drug crisis. Um, it's it's uh, it, it's hard to find anybody in this province who has who doesn't know somebody who has died as a result of the toxic drug supply.
0: And when we talk about that number, and not that one death is worse than another, or, or or should be treated differently than another, but are you seeing anything change with who is dying or where people are dying from toxic drugs?
2: So we know um, that the downtown east side, of course, is an area where many vulnerable people live, and that they have a very high death rate there, um, a little over 300 in that um, local um, uh, health neighbourhood. but But... 1,900 people are dying elsewhere in the province. So we we are seeing high rates of death in small communities. Uh, certainly the highest rate of death in the province is in the north. Uh, the interior uh, is maxed in terms of death rates. But we're seeing communities big and small. We are actually seeing the, the age of those dying is, is trending upwards. So uh, people in their 30s, 40s and 50s, most at risk, still primarily men, Um in the general population, uh, men represent about 79% of those who die. And, um, and, and contrary to, I think, what, what people often think, um, these are people dying at home. These are people with jobs who um, are dying in their own uh, private residences and, um, and, are of course, you know, there's nobody there to help when they experience a toxic drug event and they're found by family or friends.
0: I, looking at the numbers released today as well, there was one reported death that took place at an overdose pre- prevention site in 2022. Is is that the first time we've seen a death at a, a specific prevention site?
2: It is. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Then, um, so that, that was uh, within the last few months. We had a death reported at a overdose prevention site, and that is the first in the last, well, seven, eight, well, as many years as we've been keeping this data, which is pretty remarkable given the tens of thousands of visits those sites see across the province. And I think really what that speaks to is the toxicity of the drug supply. That people um, are are experiencing a tro- toxic drug event. Of course, in those sites, the medical supports are there. Naloxone is there, and we and we hear from paramedics and others that um, sometimes they are not able to reverse a toxic drug event these days um, with, with the additives of the benzodiazepines, um, six, seven, eight doses of naloxone, and it's not effective. So, it's it's probably you know really we've been very very fortunate that we've not seen a death in, in an overdose prevention site and i you know hopefully we won't see any more but the toxic drug supply is just making this so so difficult to manage
0: Is that concerning, though, with that recorded death that, like you said, those supports are there? And and that's the reason why we've not seen deaths at these sites, that if the drugs are becoming so toxic, or I don't know if there were other circumstances there, but so toxic that even with all of those resources available, this person still lost their life.
2: Yeah, you're right, Jill. I mean, incredibly concerning, and that's what we've seen in this crisis is it was fentanyl and then carfentanil. We've seen extreme levels of fentanyl. We've seen atizolam, which is the benzodiazepine. We're seeing all sorts of things show up in the illicit drug supply because, as you know, it's unregulated. It's a profit-driven market, and uh, people are subject to, vulnerable to whatever is in the substance that they think they've purchased, and we know some people have died thinking that they had purchased cocaine and in fact uh, they died because there was fentanyl in it and they're they're not opioid users so they're they're opioid naive so that is a huge challenge with the um, illicit drug market in that uh, we don't know what's in it uh, there are some drug testing sites certainly not enough and uh, and people are using and if they go to the step of going to an overdose prevention site and, uh, you know, because that is where healthcare is, if they get into trouble and they're still dying, that is that is terrifying because that potentially creates a whole new wave of challenge that we're going to have to deal with.
0: Uh, We are talking about these numbers and looking at these numbers also on the day that decriminalization has taken place in BC as part of this pilot project and with 2.5 grams of those specific drugs now being allowed to, to be on somebody with the decriminalization. What are your thoughts on that as far as a tool?
2: Yeah, I think it's a critical tool because we know that people have been marginalized and uh, stigmatized and arresting somebody and punishing somebody uh, because they're experiencing a health care issue has been counterproductive. And we've seen that, we've seen that in the thousands of deaths, the over 11,000 deaths, just since this public health emergency was created. So it's a really, really important step to recognize people need supports to wellness. They, uh, they need healthcare, they need access to the medications that they need that are regulated and that are safe Um, So it's critical. But of course, in the current uh, market, uh, people don't have access to regulated medication. So even though they are um, uh, lawfully permitted to carry up to 2.5 grams of those substances, uh, cumulatively, um, they may be toxic. And when they use that substance, they still may die. Um, so it's, it's a critical step in, in recognizing this as a health issue and not a law enforcement issue. Um, and now we need to make sure we implement those additional steps, which is um, reducing the risk uh, with the current unre- unregulated drug market. And then having uh, supports available, treatment and recovery services when and where people need them. And those aren't currently available either.
0: Because in talking to and even hearing from Vancouver police yesterday, they again repeated the fact that there's kind of been a de facto decriminalization, at least in the city of Vancouver, where we are seeing a lot of the deaths in that they're not charging people and not arresting people for those amounts of drugs. So how does that actually change anything?
2: Yeah, so a couple of things. They weren't uh, in in the city of Vancouver and in some other municipalities, and it really depended on where you were in the province. They weren't normally arresting somebody for possession. Oh, they always they, they had the discretion; they could if they thought it was uh, important. So you've got some um, uh, inequity even in the even in that decision right there. Um, but what they were doing was taking the drugs. And so if somebody had purchased their drugs, had used some, they were safe. They knew their supply was safe or had had them tested at a drug checking site, knew they were safe. If the police took those away, they're not going to not use. They go back to the well. And maybe this time, the, the, the substance that they purchased is going to kill them. So, it's a a means of uh, recognizing A, we're not going to criminalize people, we're not going to punish people. Hopefully, people will feel more confident going to a drug checking site. They're not going to be arrested on the way or have their substance taken away from them. And um, and people will be able to use a substance that um, hopefully they can get tested and know is safe. And they won't be going back to the well over and over and over because the less uh, exposure they have to that illicit drug market. hopefully, the more safe that they will be. But it is still an illicit drug market and it is still unregulated and very toxic.
0: Right, and, and that kind of gets to the, the idea of, of safe supply because we are still talking about the same supply that has been decriminalized. Um, you mentioned treatment as well and, and focusing on that and making sure there is treatment available for people. Do you think we are doing enough of that? And and to use an example, and not that they're the same thing at all, but if to use an example of alcohol, under the new rules with decriminalization, so it is no longer a criminal offense to have the small amounts of illicit drugs for people 18 or above, so that would mean right now somebody who was 18 and caught with a beer would technically be breaking a law, but somebody who was 18 and caught with crack cocaine wouldn't be. Doesn't that seem a little bit misguided?
2: I think the reason for that is is because of the Federal Controlled Drugs and Substances Act um, um, uh, applies for for those 18 and over. So I think that was really a technicality of the law as opposed to... Um, the approach you're taking, what what makes more sense? Um, in terms of youth, they are equally at risk of dying, and they are equally at risk if they are hiding their drug use and if they are afraid to divulge to their family or caregivers that they are using drugs. Um, you know, a safe a safe supply and reducing stigma for every drug user is is really what this is geared for. It's not about encouraging people to use drugs, any drugs, any substances. We don't encourage people to use alcohol either or or cigarettes or or you know, too much coffee or, or too many sweets. There's all sorts of substances that are that are quite dangerous. But this is about saying if people are people who are using, people who are at risk of dying we want to reduce the stigma. We want to uh, ensure that people uh, can access treatments and feel safe to, um, to access treatments. And, and then hopefully, you know, in reference to safer supply, at some point we'll be able to connect them to a safer supply or, um, or, a, or a treatment.
0: And just one other point on that, when we talk about removing the stigma, and, and you mentioned those other uh, kind of, I guess, vices, for lack of a better word, or, or addictions that people have, but there is still, there is a stigma to being an alcoholic. There's certainly a stigma to drinking and driving. There's stigma to smoking. Uh, those things do have stigma, and, and they're often used in, in a way to, to to try and convince people to, to maybe stop that behavior. Uh, so is, is not a little bit of stigma okay in that it... it it is something. It's a behavior that ultimately we're we're trying to stop, aren't we? Yeah, it's certainly about
2: encouraging people to be healthy. It's about encouraging people not to do the things that put them at risk of greater harm. Uh, and then, really, it's it's how we do that. Do we punish and marginalize, or do we recognize that? Um, you have a health problem and, uh, there are ways and means that we can help you and about regulation. So, you know, you can't smoke wherever you want to smoke and you're, you know, you, you, well, there are many more places you can drink now than you used to. Um, and that, you know, that, that's my age, but it's, you can't be, uh, intoxicated and creating a disturbance because that's something that you're going to be, is going to be frowned upon and there will be a consequence. You can't drive while intoxicated. There will be a consequence. So it's not about no consequences or no regulation, but it's about recognizing what is the approach. Are we going to use the um, health-focused regulated approach uh, versus the criminalizing, stigmatizing approach? And and the former uh, is is going to be much healthier for people and much better if we take people who are vulnerable and who are using substances. And people come to substances for a variety of reasons. We know that, and um, and then we further harm them. How how is that going to help them? Um, they lose their jobs, or they you know they lose their children, they lose their community. They it's just so counterproductive in terms of helping people to be productive healthy citizens Um, and I think that's what this decriminalization reflects is that punishing has not worked there is a better way to to support people to wellness
0: all right chief coroner Lisa Lapointe as always thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today well thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it 134 on this Tuesday afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, remember when we were talking about the $6,000 night hotel room in London and trying to get answers about who stayed in that room? That was when the Canadian contingent went for the Queen's funeral. Well, a lot of questions there, but now some other hotel expenses are getting some attention. Bill
3: Liberals spent $6.7 million for just 10 people to stay at a Calgary Airport hotel. That's $670,000 a person. There's no justification for this. COVID quarantine restrictions were eased long before this time. $670,000 could have bought a beautiful home in Calgary a dream after eight eight years that is out of reach for so many people precisely because of liberal waste like this. So two questions. How many other hotels did this happen at, and has anybody been fired for this waste?
2: The Honourable Minister of Health.
1: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. We are all very mindful of the terrible pain and the large number of deaths and the even larger number of hospitalizations that we have seen in Canada over COVID-19. That's why our primary responsibility has been and remains to protect the safety and the health of Canadians, including the tens of thousands of people who had to access the designated quarantine facilities. Because of these measures and vaccination, in addition, we have saved together, Mr. Mr. Speaker, tens of thousands of lives and tens of billions of dollars in economic cost.
0: All right, that exchange in the House of Commons between Michelle Rumpel-Garner, Member of Parliament for the Alberta Riding of Calgary-Nose Hill, and the Federal Health Minister and MP Michelle Rumpel-Garner joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for making some time today. Thanks for having me. That was the exchange earlier and clearly not an answer to your question about if there are other hotels or how this happened. But can we back up a little bit and how did this information come to light?
3: Well, you know, as a member of parliament, I try to notice things and I try to ensure that there's accountability for government spending. And I I had noticed that one of the hotels near the Calgary airport had been shut down for quite a while to deliver some sort of service for the government. So I put this question to the government through a mechanism that's available to me as a member of parliament, just asking, you know, how much have you spent on this program? And and I, I honestly, it was just a hunch. I thought that they would have had some common sense and shut it down when they had eased restrictions. But lo and behold, you know, the government spent all of this money on so few people. And, you know, again, regardless of political stripe, this is just pure government waste. And uh, it was really shocking to see. So now we're trying to push for answers and some accountability for this decision.
0: And the number that you put out there or the number that you, you cited in that exchange, and you've written about this as well, uh, how, uh, could, how does that break down, or we're breaking that down, or, or you've broken it down, that 15 people, just 15 people in the expense of, of more than $6.7 million? So
3: in the information that I received, received in response to my official question, the government said that they spent $6.7 million in fiscal year 2022, which starts in April. So, I had also asked the government how many people stayed in that facility from April onwards. So in that nine-month period between April and the end of um, December 2022, only 10 people had stayed. I had originally just looked at the calendar year, but when you just look at it, it's actually only 10 people. So $6.7 million divided by 10 people $670,000. You know, when you think about that in terms of my community in Calgary, you know, our average rent is about 1650 for a two-bedroom condo. That would cover the rent for you know over 41 Calgarians for a month, and that's just crazy. It's just pure waste. There's no justification. The restrictions had been lifted. Um, like the government doesn't really have a leg to stand on on this, and that's why I really think that they need to be accountable. They need to fire someone over this. This is huge waste. And at a time when everybody's struggling and we need to be looking at ways to make ends meet and bring inflation down, the fact that this is continuing is is really shocking.
0: And is this, does this go back to when there there were the restrictions? And I remember, I think, uh, talking, uh, we talked about this at the time, and some of the, the allegations of assault and the issues with the hotels, uh, reasons why people didn't want to go to these hotels, in many cases anyway. But was it not when that was announced that that was going to be a COVID-19 requirement that people would have to quarantine in these hotels? uh, Were they not also told that they would have to pay for it themselves? Or was this a different program where it was covered? by by taxpayer dollars. Well,
3: it's the time period too, right? So the time period I wrote about came after the government's own expert panel in May of 2021. So like a year prior said this program is not necessarily necessary. It came after most of the world had lifted restrictions. It came after we lifted restrictions as a country. And you know, what you're talking about too, there was a lot of debate about whether the program was necessary even to begin with. Um, There were, as you rightly pointed out, allegations of sexual assault at some of these facilities. And then when we were pushed and we were trying to get the government to show how this option would have been better even back then than home quarantine. They didn't have any data. And so a lot of people, there was a lot of accusations that this was a politically driven program. It wasn't based on scientific data, um, that there were better ways to control the spread of COVID-19. And certainly today, like there's no justification for this. There was no justification for them to be spending this money from April 2022 onwards after they had eased restrictions. And I just, the other detail in there was that they had the option to cancel these contracts with 30 days notice. And the fact that they just let this go and spent so much money at a time when, you know, we're looking at things like underfunded healthcare programs, affordability, it's just, it's mismanagement, it's waste. And the Liberal government needs to be held to account.
0: And when you talk about cancelling the contracts then, that they could have cancelled giving 30-day notice, is that the contracts with the hotel and they, they kept that going? Or, or what, what were those actual contracts for?
3: So in the, it's a great question, in the response that I received, and if you want to look at it, I posted it online, uh, they, they state that they gave the um, uh, hotel's 30 days notice in late fall of last year well, if they could do that then, like, why didn't they do that when they eased restrictions? Why did we spend 6.7 million more dollars on, you know, essentially 10 people? And that's just one hotel. Like, the clip you, paid, you played at the start of the segment, I want to know how many other hotels this is happening at. Do they still have contracts with other hotels, right? So there's a lot of answers to, that. Are, that a lot of questions that still need to be answered, and, you know, taxpayers deserve deserve a response from the government on it
0: right and so to be clear that's the hotel that we're talking about it was one calgary area hotel that you happen to notice and and question but yeah there could very well be a vancouver hotel or a toronto hotel or several well we
3: know that there were hotels in vancouver for sure that uh were being used for this purpose um you know, I, 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 I would surmise if this happened in Calgary it certainly would have happened in Vancouver. And, you know, you know, from a Calgarian to a Vancouverite, you guys, your cost of living, it's bad, it's it's worse than us right now. Um, you know, I, I know how bad the affordability crisis is in Vancouver and how hard it is to find a place to live. And if, if, if the government federal government spending money on any sort of accommodation, it shouldn't be waste like this. Not now, not ever. So I suspect that there's going to be a lot more inquiry, particularly on some of these hotels and other places like Vancouver, like Toronto. Um, and, and I certainly, you know, my question in the House, I think, was valid. If anyone else wasted this level of money in any other circumstance, they'd lose their job. And I, I think that needs to happen here.
0: And and just going back to that, so and and we we knew at the time, yes, that that, that there was at least one hotel. I, I think more than that in Vancouver. But I guess the, the, the question now is, was that contract also was it still in place up until fall of last year, or do we know, uh, or is it how still do we, going, or is it still going like, exactly? Yeah, we don't know, and
3: and that's the thing. I I just. I, I, when the government the government has spent so much money we've had this hybrid parliament system it's been you know if i could describe to you what it's like as an individual member of parliament trying to look through the level of spending that the government's undertaken in the last couple of years to hold them to account on value for money and that transcends partisanship it's like it's like swimming into a tsunami you know it, there's just so much going on and this is i think just a drop in the bucket but that doesn't mean that the government shouldn't be held to account for it. So I certainly hope people ask the question about hotels in, in your neck of the woods. Um, I was, because if, if, if it happened in my, if it happened in my neighborhood, if it happened in Calgary, I, I'm, I'm sure it happened in other places too.
0: All right. Well, I'm sure we have not heard the last of this and there will be more questions about this. Michelle Garner, thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us today. Thanks for having me.